Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're doing part two of our deep dive into Joshua Zeman's documentary, Murder Mountain, the history of marijuana in Humboldt County, California, and several high-profile murders in the Emerald Triangle area. We've got hippies, guns, four-wheelers, drugs, serial killers, paramilitary government raids, and the birth of legal weed. So, like I say from time to time, I'm not a journalist. I'm a person who likes to tell her husband true crime stories, but... This series, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be a little journalisty holiday treat for y'all. So we're doing this two-part series based on the docu-series Murder Mountain and like a few other fantastic sources I'll name at the end like we normally do. That's our format for this podcast. Mm -hmm. But then we're going to have an interview for you that Nick did with an old and wonderful friend who worked fell in love and started a family on Murder Mountain who, spoiler alert, hated the documentary and would not watch it. And finally- He tried. He had to turn, to, turn it off. We talk about it a little bit uh, in the interview, which right now is available currently on our Patreon. Otherwise, it'll be out next week. All right. Yes. Ooh, so many treats. And okay. guess what? This what? is the other thing that's going to go on our Patreon. Let's hit him with Nick it. Nick and I- are taking our cat, Bongo, to Humboldt County on a road trip. We are going to go out and stay in a trailer in the middle of nowhere for a couple of days and do our version of investigative journalism. Bar hopping, burger eating, and being too shy to talk to anybody. But... We're really great at vibe reports, so we'll be doing one of those. <laughs> yeah. We'll let you know what's really cracking off in Humboldt these days. You know what I mean? I mean, not really what's cracking off. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, just yeah. what we'd see doing something very safe. <laughs> exactly. And mild. <laughs> um, yes. And before we get down to business, uh, we just want to celebrate that we got a Christmas present all the way from Australia. <laughs> Thank you, Ancestral Twines, for sending us a little inside joke t-shirt based on the podcast and making sure Muriel has some fresh new gear to uh, roll up in Humboldt County looking dank AF. I'm going to wear that shirt every day. I love it. It looks great, and it's so funny. It says, I can't, wait, what does it say? I can't not rabbit hole, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is completely true. It's something Muriel said in like one of our very first episodes of Muriel's Murders. Well, that's and, why uh, like occasionally you'll get two-part episodes or episodes that are like an hour hour and a half long <laughs> that rabbit hole is deep and it won't stop all right we also want to thank tink media and dana gerber margie for including us in their audio delicacies best podcast of 2022 list in the write-up dana said this podcast brings her joy and that is like the best possible thing that we could hear so dana thank, thank you, you so, so much. much all right this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick 
and they don't want to hear about those kind of things. You just go listen to a different podcast. Yes, and we're going to joke. We're going to curse. And if you don't like those things, go check out your local PBS affiliate station. They, I'm sure, have amazing programming that will benefit you and make your life better. And, you know, go support them. Go listen to This American Life. It's a great podcast. There's lots of stuff to do. (laughs) All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. All right, we're just going to jump right into it. So, you know, don't listen to this one before you listen to the first half because I'm not doing no recaps. All right. Yeah. The hippies of Humboldt County continues right now. (laughs) So in the late fall of 2013, 49-year-old Neil Decker, longtime Murder Mountain resident, was struggling with the disappearance of Garrett Rodriguez and This disappearance was personal in a sort of unexpected way. Mm -hmm. According to Zeman's documentary, Neil Decker's son, Jonathan Decker Coleman, had actually recently died in a suspicious accident. He was told, Neil was told, that his son was killed during a game of Russian roulette Mm. and no one was ever charged with the crime. So he doesn't believe that that's what happened, but there's no way to prove otherwise right that's sad r.i.p that's rough the way garrett's disappearance was being treated in the hands of the humboldt sheriff's office and kind of the gross obscene way the suspected killer talked about garrett who was only 29 and as far as the community knew was just trying to get paid money he was owed before Uh he was potentially murdered okay all of that made Neil Decker, you know, a lot of feelings come up for Neil Decker about mm-hmm. his son and his relationship with the community and the way that his son was kind of treated or that murder was treated. Right. So the general scuttlebutt in Murder Mountain at the time was that Garrett's alleged killer had actually returned to Alder Point to live and work openly and that he was running his mouth about killing Garrett and getting away with it. And Neil, like I said, she felt a connection to Garrett's parents and and really like had the feeling of not knowing what actually happened to their son. Yeah. So So he's getting the sense of like, okay, this keeps happening and I can maybe try to help figure out what happened with Garrett. Right. So this plan Uh started to form. People started to talk and it started with Neil Decker and quickly grew to include Scott Johnson whose best friend was murdered by the witch killers he'd hired in the 1980s. Right. So at this point in time, Neil Decker and Scott Johnson were very close friends. And Scott, in particular, was known on the mountain as like a father figure, a community mediator. Mm -hmm. His nickname was Dad of the Mountain. Mm -hmm. So with Neil and now Scott, the group rapidly grew to around eight people. And on a drunken Thanksgiving night in 2013, these men dressed up in camouflage gear, grabbed some guns and went out into the night to bust out some vigilante justice. Okay. All right. So 
John Riley is the only person to have gone on record with police and the FBI about what really happened that night. Mm -hmm. Riley is a self-described isolationist, a Vietnam vet who moved to the mountains to like get away from people. Mm -hmm. And he really looks the part. You know, he's thin, wild, bearded, prospector type with this very sweet sort of of the forest energy. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So Riley's house was right next door to the grow operation Garrett Rod- Rodriguez was working on. Not only did he know Garrett and Garrett's white Dodge pickup truck, John Riley's son, John Jr., was actually really good friends with Garrett. Mm. They were around the same age. In fact... John Jr. may have been one of the very first people to clock Garrett as missing. Mm -hmm. John Jr. couldn't get a hold of Garrett, so he walks from his dad's house over to the farm next door and kind of just asks if Garrett was around and he could talk. And what John Jr. says is the alleged killer told John Jr. that Garrett had cashed out and headed down to Mexico to fish. So if you remember in part one, that was always his goal was not to be there in Humboldt County forever, but to cash out and spend the rest of his life in Mexico. He was trying to hit it and quit it, you know, make some good money and, uh, and, and go live the rest of his life elsewhere. Right. So this guy says... I have a question about this alleged killer. You're not saying his name. We know he's from Indiana. Are you protecting his identity or are we going to learn who this dude is down the line? Uh, we're protecting his identity because he's uh-huh. never been convicted of anything. Okay. All right. So, yeah. Okay. So this guy, he says, hey, man, your friend, Garrett, he's officially left the mountain and he's down in Mexico and man, he's having the time of his life. But while John Jr.'s listening to what this guy is saying, he's looking around the property and his eyes land on Garrett's truck, mm-hmm. just like sitting there in the driveway with his surfboard and all of his kind of distinctive fishing poles in the back. Like the things that he would take in order to live the life that this guy is suggesting he's living. Like the only things that he would have <laughs> taken. <laughs> like really beyond. His one set of swim trunks. Exactly. Like the yeah. thing that he always does, the car uh-huh. he always takes to San Diego with right. him. uh-huh. And for those of you who are not in the States or needed some score being kept, San Diego is basically on the border of Mexico. Right. So they're very close. Anyways. Right. Right. So you wouldn't just like not take your car. And you have to take your car to leave the mountain. Anyway. Anyway. There's not like this really great like light rail system. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So he's suspicious immediately. Right. So John Jr. just decides to ask about it. You know, he looks the guy in the face and he's like, well, Garrett's in Mexico. What, what's up with his truck being parked in your driveway? It's a reasonable question. And he says, basically, this alleged killer just straight up froze. He had like no <laughs> like explanation for it. Yeah. And at this moment, you know, John Jr.'s like... Okay, well, obviously something's wrong. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, he had he had come up with this lie, and he had really not thought about it, like on any level, right? <laughs> He's like, "Oh, damn, bro, the uh, car is right there. It's literally behind me." Uh, you guys will hear the interview, but and I can't talk about the people that we're speaking of in the moment of this story, but these people smoke a lot of weed, <laughs> right? a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. 
So eventually, <laughs> whatever, that was not a good plan. Yeah. Well, eventually, this guy, you know, goes from having this half-assed attempt at lying about him being in Mexico, Garrett mm-hmm. being in Mexico, to just straight up bragging about murdering him. And, you know, everyone in the town knew who he was. They knew where his farm was. They knew mm-hmm. his name. They knew Garrett worked for him. And he's out there just like straight up being like, yeah, it was me. And I murdered him. Right. Right. So John Riley's story is that he was at his house on Thanksgiving when he saw a caravan drive down the dirt road outside his house and stop outside of his neighbor's spot, right? And like we said on the mountain, everybody just sees everybody coming and going. Right. There's one road. Mm -hmm. Um, So he goes out and he decides to go down and see what's up. So Riley says there were around eight men there, including Scott Johnson, Neil Decker, and then another old school murder mountain figure, Bob Holtzclaw. And then also Riley's son, John Riley Jr. Um, And the rest of the men were wearing camouflage and masks. Some of Mm -hmm. that is not, you know. What? Those are the people we know for sure were there. Oh, so some identities have not been verified. I mean, this whole thing is part urban legend, part John Riley is the only one who knows. Sure. Whatever. Okay. Right? So there do seem to be a few versions circling about on the internet and at different situations about what actually happened that night. Mm-hmm. But basically, the guys rolled up. They go up to the house. They pull the alleged murderer out of the house. So Scott Johnson is taking the lead. He's not wearing a mask and he's interrogating this guy about where Garrett's body is. Mm -hmm. He's interrogating the guy when Bob Holtzclaw, who had a rep for being sort of over the top macho potster, just kind of grabs a pistol and pistol whips the guy across the face accidentally firing the gun and taking off a piece of the man's ear. So John Riley says he saw the man shoot the alleged killer two more times. I believe he said that Neil Decker did it Mm -hmm. Um, once in the leg and then once in the chest, both not kill shots Mm -hmm. before the man made a confession. So John Riley said that he himself his son, John Jr., and the three OG mountain men, Scott, Bob, and Neil, all heard him give a confession about murdering Garrett Rodriguez and the location of his body. Mm -hmm. So I think the consensus was, in the end, Scott Johnson, Neil Decker, John Riley, and John Riley Jr. piled the alleged killer into John Riley's truck, and that's the group of people that drove through the dark to Jewett Ranch, where he had been rumored to be buried. Mm -hmm. There, the men found a field of holes that looked dug up for like planting a grow operation, so just a bunch of holes in the ground. Then, the alleged murderer led them to a filled-in hole. The grave was really shallow, and within moments, they uncovered a foot in a shoe that ultimately ended up belonging to Garrett Rodriguez. Oh, so that was his body. Yeah. R.I.P. The men then packed everyone into the truck and drove the alleged killer to a nearby hospital where they dropped him off on the ground outside and drove away. The landowner of Jewett Ranch called the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department to report the body 
And then someone else, probably thinking about the Rodriguez family, left private investigator Chris Cook a message that Garrett bo- Garrett's body had been found. Mm. That's a that's a really really heartbreaking message to get. Yeah. So now the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department, you know, they have the truck linking Garrett to Humboldt County. They have a suspect in the hospital. So, you know, a captive suspect, essentially. And now they have the body of Garrett Rodriguez with a gunshot wound to the head. Something that people assumed would spur the sheriff's department into action. So that investigation definitely started to escalate. And as for the Alder Point 8... They were kind of hailed as local heroes. People were really like, you took took things into your own hands and and did the thing that we all knew needed to be done. Uh-huh. There are issues with this, however, right? Like <laughs> yeah. shooting somebody and like coerced confessions you can't use in court, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's kind of two sides to the situation where mm-hmm. people believe that the cops weren't, you know, working as hard as they could or as fast as they could to solve the issue. Yeah. Because basically at this point, Garrett Rodriguez's case was cold. Mm-hmm. And then this other side of like a bunch of drunk dudes just pulled somebody out of a house and shot him three times and then got the location of the body. That doesn't necessarily mean anything except for the guy knows where the location of the body is. Right. right? Of course. You know, who knows exactly what happened? I mean... You know, that's the problem when you're dealing with drunken vigilante justice. So we can see everything's a little complicated at this point. Basically, Mm -hmm. after Thanksgiving, Scott Johnson and Neil Decker just skipped town. They did not want to be arrested for shooting this guy. Hell yeah. And the sheriff's department, for their part, seemed to put most of their energy into finding this vigilante group than actually solving Garrett's murder. Uh, Yeah. In 2014, so remember, this all happened at the end of 2013. Mm -hmm. In 2014, early, I believe in January, the lead detective on Garrett's murder case, Jennifer Turner, told press that the murder suspect had been treated at the hospital, questioned, and released. Mm. Due to lack of evidence, he was actually never arrested. And later, he just disappeared altogether. He got out of town. Yeah, Mr. Indiana is no more. Yeah, he got out. And because it seemed clear the confession was coerced, police claimed they needed more of the Alder Point 8 to come forward with information to Mm. maybe corroborate what John Riley was saying. But basically, the only person to speak directly with law enforcement was John Riley. He gave statements to the police or to the sheriff's department. He gave statements to the private investigator, Chris Cook, who was working for the Rodriguez family and even he spoke with the FBI at one point John Riley claimed that the only people who were close enough to the alleged killer's confession were Bob Scott Neil and himself so there was the other like masked people that no one knows who they are were not close enough I think it was just like a big crazy moving Piece, mm-hmm. but the people that were really talking to the mm-hmm. alleged killer were was this handful of people plus John Riley's son John Jr. Right. 
And this is a part of a documentary. <laughs> I'll just say, uh-huh. I mean, John Riley and a couple people are trying to say, like, I know for a fact when he confessed he didn't have a gun to his head, but they had shot him three times. <laughs> yeah, so they keep like, trying to act like it wasn't coerced. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, they, they, they they're surrounding him with guns that happen to be pointed either at the sky or the ground at the moment of his confession. And they shot him in the leg, the ear, and the chest. <laughs> what John Riley said. So it doesn't feel like that's particularly uncoerced. Uh, so anyway, John says these people can corroborate my my statement that it wasn't mm-hmm. coerced or whatever. Mm-hmm. But all of those people had either scattered to the wind or taken a low profile up on the mountain, hiding from the police and weren't going to talk. The FBI did come in and take Chris Cook's investigation files. But to her, that was an indication that Garrett's death was potentially connected to some larger interstate situation. Mm -hmm. Like the FBI isn't going to come up there and help with solving a local murder. You know, that's not really what the FBI does. Yeah. But it was maybe an indication that Garrett could have involved been involved with something bigger, perhaps something involved with meth. That's like the whispers around the mm-hmm. idea. But all of that is like unfounded. All we right. know is that the FBI briefly got involved, but nothing came of that. Yeah, maybe they heard the thing about, ooh, Mexico or something. Yeah, who knows? So regardless, nothing came of that. And to this day, no one has been arrested for Garrett Rodriguez's murder. Wow. Yeah. So less than a year. I don't know. Just RIP, man. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's rough, man. RIP. So less than a year later in the summer of 2014, Scott Johnson's nightmare happened all over again. His closest friend, Neil Decker, was murdered by one of his workers that he had hired, one of the workers on the farm. God damn. Scott Johnson had met a young man named Matt Brown years earlier and hired him to work full time on his weed farm. And, you know, Matt had kind of a rough upbringing and he considered Scott Johnson, the dad of the mountain, to be a father figure. He actually called him dad. Mm-hmm. However, Matt Brown had issues with Scott's bestie, Neil Decker. The story from the survivors of the Neil Decker and Scott Johnson camp told Joshua Zeman that while Scott Johnson was on the run for his Alder Point 8 crimes, Matt Brown was caretaking his properties, mm-hmm. right? Which are next door to Neil Decker's properties. And the rumor is Matt Brown had been trashing the place and kind of power tripping on Scott Johnson's employees. He had like punched someone in the head and he had shot another guy in the head with a paintball gun. So he was kind of running amok on this property. Yeah, he's being a wild ass. Right. So Scott and Neil, they came back to town after being on the lamb November 2014 to hear all about Matt Brown being a baddie on, on the property. So This is all according to Scott and Neil's people. Mm -hmm. So I guess to defend 
Scott's honor, Neil Decker started terrorizing Matt Brown on a four-wheeler and just like generally bullying him. So because he has this tension with Neil Decker, who's always on Scott Johnson's property, Matt Brown decided to start carrying a rifle strapped to his back for protection and things escalated, ending with Matt Brown shooting Neil Decker to death in Scott Johnson's bedroom. That's the version that essentially Scott Johnson's former girlfriend and Neil Decker's former girlfriends and then friends of like that group Uh told Joshua Zeman for them the story. I actually Uh found the case text from the people versus Brown. So like kind of what was said at the trial. So I'm going to just tell you what Matt Brown's version of events were. Okay. Okay? So neither one of these can be objective truths really uh-huh. but that was the perspective of one camp and then this is matt's brown version of events gotcha. so matt brown he says he worked and lived on scott johnson's property neil decker lived nearby and was at scott's house all the time matt brown neil decker and both their girlfriends all enjoyed partaking in meth together so there was a lot of crystal meth happening Mm -hmm. for mostly vibe reasons matt brown and neil decker had been just kind of locked in a feud since 2013 you know (laughs) uh yeah just 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 some moldy meth got in the mix and that was it yeah you got that and then Uh like you've got okay well i think Scott Johnson's my dad and Neil Decker's like, well, he's my best friend. I mean, that's what right. I'm thinking, but whatever. <laughs> that's my, my own interpretation. Yeah. Bro love beef. Right. Uh, the biggest fight that they had was as the caretaker of Scott's property, Matt Brown would continuously keep the gate locked on the property, but Neil Decker came over all the time and the property properties are big. So you're mm-hmm. driving your car onto the property and he was super annoyed. He had to unlock the gate to go over to his friend's house. Like he just thought that was an annoying habit. It's like my dad always wants to leave his apartment door unlocked. And if I lock the door before I go to bed, he'll be like, what are you trying to do to me? You know, like, There's definitely a, a type of, I would put your dad in this camp yes. of sort of like a anti-society outlaw yeah. who doesn't like locks they and also they're not in safe situations (laughs) it's not about feeling very safe where you are but if you lock if you lock something it's like an affront to their ability to shoot you right so (laughs) matt brown kept locking this gate and neil decker was like why are you doing this so like he'd always keep it open every time he went through, which annoyed Matt Brown. And then sometimes... (laughs) Okay, that's the beef. And then sometimes he would just come over and just, even though he could get in, he would just cut the lock with bolt cutters to like (laughs) teach Matt a lesson. (laughs) So like whatever, something, something. They're just doing this thing together. Oh, man. So according to... Matt Brown's girlfriend. I could completely see your dad getting into a years long beef with someone like literally in that exact scenario. I know. No, I know. I know. I I relate to that so hard. I can't like my funniest, the funniest things that are, oh, I've never, I'm not going to tell these stories on the podcast, but are my dad's feuds with neighbors. I've just been like, on what level? My dad was so mad at my, one of our next door neighbors because he didn't have a super big yard, but he bought a riding lawnmower. <laughs> and my dad was like, who does he think he is? <laughs> they would, uh, they yeah. feuded for, I think, almost close to a decade. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, 
According to Matt Brown's girlfriend, you know, who lived in a trail with him on Scott Johnson's property, he's, she said Neil Decker's nickname for Matt Brown was Bitch Boy and that he basically constantly threatened to sexually assault Matt Brown. So that was like got to the point where he was like a bigger, older guy and he genuinely felt threatened by him he was feeling like mm -hmm. neil decker was being a super big wild card so he would do stuff like threaten to rape him uh -huh. and then he would also chest bump him really hard like check him and he used to do this thing where he'd pretend to pull a gun out of his waistband to like fake matt brown out so he was just like constantly terrorizing this guy who is mm -hmm. also doing a lot of crystal meth so yeah Right. According to Matt Brown's Matt Brown. testimony. Right. So like at one point in 20, you know, 13 or 2014, they got into a wrestling match over the gate thing, like a fight. And then they ended up like rolling down this hill mm -hmm. and then Matt Brown just got super scared and he ran away. And then in a totally unrelated incident, this, I couldn't get much about this, but it was in the case file is that, there was this three-way thing where uh, Bob Holtzclaw, who was like one of the, the pistol whipper from the Alder Point 8, yeah. had been like messing with Matt Brown. <laughs> so Matt Brown sprayed Bob Holtzclaw with bear mace. Ooh. And then Neil Decker got pissed that the bear mace was used, so he pepper sprayed Matt Brown. Oh. <laughs> Oh, man. And I'm guessing they're all just standing in a circle getting <laughs> pepper spray. It's like that Spider-Man uh, exactly. meme. But just uh, people high out of their mind just gassing each other. Right. So I think there was just a lot of going on. And I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, man. I'm not making fun of anyone. I will need everyone in the world to know that and the Lord above. I'm not. I'm laughing at the situation, not at a person. I know. I know. It's, it's just like when you... I actually am not speaking ill of anyone at it's all. It's not. It's just choice. It's choice. <laughs> just that's like, a wild like, story. Like, I know. It's, like that was the thing about this is you you know like people yeah. there's the kind of accepted story which generally speaking uh -huh. runs the course of like truth. Like there's not a lot of difference between the two. But when people actually have to sit down and like do a deposition and like talk in court and say like exactly what happened, <laughs> then this these details start coming out where you're just like whoa it kind of reminds me like in jackass when they all get into like taser fights yeah but they're like giggling but they're still close to each other like tasering each other or yeah, whatever i don't think anybody and this is like it. the violent pepper spray version of that yeah. where they're still not like um removing themselves from the situation exactly and stopping right? that part yeah right so eventually whatever happened scott ended up having to fire matt brown I think generally speaking, the reason was it was for slacking on his caretaking job. Mm -hmm. And then also Matt Brown had taken some tools he shouldn't have had access to from a locked shed and had not returned them. Mm -hmm. Matt Brown decides, you know, he's going to move off the property. He breaks up with his girlfriend who he'd been living in a trailer with. And he moves in with another girlfriend off Scott's property somewhere nearby. So on July 18th, 2014, Matt Brown got word that Scott Johnson, the guy that he still called dad, wanted to have a talk with him. 
basically that Scott was upset about these missing tools. That was the, the main reason. But it was a weird situation. You know, like Scott was calling him over to the house at a lot later time than he normally would. He was calling him over like at 9 p.m. when normally mm-hmm. like that wouldn't be a time he'd want to talk about business. Uh-huh. And Matt had already been doing meth with his new girlfriend. So it was like all pretty much a nightmare. It's like when your boss calls you and asks you if you can cover and you've like been drinking or like, <laughs> yeah, oh, right. God forbid, eating edible or something. Oh man. I have too many <laughs> stories about that. Okay. Next thing we like, all know. Yeah. I have. Yeah. Okay. So he's high on meth. He's trying to figure out how to handle this like out of, I, like kind of out of pocket, strange 9 p.m summons to the house right Mm -hmm. so matt decides he's gonna get ready he puts on a bulletproof vest and a headlamp and then he strapped his shotgun on his back and also holstered a toy gun that supposedly looked pretty real okay and headed over so that feels like a very Methy thing to do, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you have a real shotgun. I don't want to laugh about I this, Meryl. They're going to kill us. I We're know. going to but, their neighborhood. I know. I'm sorry, but I, I just like, <laughs> the details that happen when you read this thing. Oh, we deserve to get our asses beat in a bar. Okay. You run for your life. I'll take the blows. Well, we're definitely not wearing any Muriel's murders gear. <laughs> Okay, so when Matt gets to the house, it's all super crappy and tense, right? Like Neil Decker is already there because he's always there. And he's sitting on uh, Scott's porch with his girlfriend and then with Matt's Matt Brown's ex-girlfriend and Matt Brown's ex's new boyfriend. So this is obviously a super anti-Matt Brown camp, right? Yeah. It's and a little bit of another Spider-Man meme of pointing at each other kind of situation already. They're all the posse's out front on the thing. Uh-huh. He walks up. He's strapped with this toy gun, and he has this super bright headlamp on. So then Neil gets mad at him for shining the headlamp on them. So they get they already start getting mad at each other, and he's like, "You're blinding us. This is horrible." Blah blah uh-huh. blah. They all put on their own headlamps. <laughs> so he gets past this line of people Uh and he goes upstairs to Scott's bedroom where he's waiting. So as he goes upstairs, Neil Decker follows him upstairs and he's obviously like really agitated. The girls are kind of following behind. It's Uh kind of chaotic. There's lots of rooms upstairs from what I can tell. Uh They start talking about these tools and there's this kind of conflict where Basically, Matt Brown is saying, you know, you're accusing me of stealing a welder. I didn't steal this welder. Neil Decker sold it. And, you know, like some sort of weird three-way swap where he sold it, wasn't supposed to or something. Mm -hmm. And Neil Decker, who'd been like pacing back and forth and popping his head in the room and like putting himself in the business, popped in the room and just said like, don't put my name in your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. And Matt Brown just exploded he starts screaming at neil and scott's girlfriend joanna hames later said quote i know it took me by surprise because it had been a conversation between three guys about some stupid welder right it was Mm -hmm. just kind of a little out of left field how hyped up and freaked out matt brown was Mm -hmm. and the next moment 
Neil Decker did his fake out reach behind for a gun thing and Matt Brown shot Neil Jack Decker in the chest with a shotgun. Mm. So Scott Johnson screams, you just killed my best friend. And he wrestles with Matt. He grabs the shotgun. Matt screams, what are you doing, dad? And then he runs and jumps off the second story balcony, lands in the yard and like off into the night. So Neil Decker was airlifted to the nearest hospital, but he died on the way. R.I.P. Now that his second best friend had been murdered in his house, Scott Johnson was ready to get the police involved. He Mm -hmm. was just like, this is way, way, way too much. After Neil was killed, Scott called police and basically said, it was Matt Brown. He was here. This is where he lives. Gave Mm -hmm. him all the information. Mm -hmm. But Scott... Johnson was dissatisfied with the speed of the police response. He felt like it should have been really swift, but like it had like a couple days went by and Mm -hmm. Matt Brown wasn't arrested. So Scott Johnson had heard through the grapevine that Matt Brown had been spotted at an old nearby cabin wearing a wig. And he decided once again to take matters into his own hands. So on July 21st, 2014, just three days after Neil Decker's murder, Scott got together another posse, this time to get Matt Brown to talk to him or to shoot him or whatever. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. So this is a smaller group this time, just three guys. It's Scott Johnson, a dude named Redhead Dave, and then this unidentified guy that Scott had recently hired who had just gotten out of jail. The three men walked down to the suspected cabin and split up around the area to search for Matt Brown. The unnamed man peeked into the cabin and kind of told everyone or signaled that he couldn't see anything or anyone inside this little cabin. It was getting dark. It was getting creepy. It was feeling not like a successful or safe mission Mm -hmm. so they decided to head back to scott's place they were all kind of like 30 feet away from each other heading towards the same direction to drive back to scott johnson's place and all a little jittery and the story according to redhead dave is scott ran out of the bushes for some reason maybe to catch up with the group and the unnamed former jailbird got startled and shot him. Ooh. Did he die? Redhead Dave kind of saw the whole thing. He, he didn't really clock it. He just heard gunshots. Didn't know quite what was going on. So he just took off running. He was gone. He mm-hmm. ran, ran and ran and ran. So what they think happened, the idea is the jailbird threw Scott's body into the back of the truck but and tried to drive him somewhere to maybe get help. But the mm-hmm. roads are so bad out there what people believe is that he may have bounced out of the back of the truck and into the road. Oh. So the jailbird is thought to have kept driving, not knowing that Scott's body was not there. Yeah. And Scott's body was found in the middle of the road around midnight. Whoa. Just about 50 feet where police found Matt Brown sleeping the next day. And nobody really witnessed where the gunshots came from. Yeah. And the jailbird is gone which I think is pretty wild. Okay, so, just what happened to Scott? 
Scott died. He died? Yeah. So Scott. R.I.P. So this is. Okay. So that's two of the Alderwood eight. Exactly. Uh, Matt Brown was captured. He's now serving 40 years to life in a San Diego prison for the murder of Neil Decker. And the guy who shot Scott was never arrested. Redhead Dave didn't actually see what happened. Mm -hmm. And police were like able to track down the gun they believe killed Scott. But there wasn't like enough to connect the gun to this jailbird guy. There were no fingerprints or anything. So actually Scott Johnson's murder is now a cold case. Whoa. So in the span of three days, two of the four people who could corroborate John Riley's story about the Alder Point 8 shooting a confession out of Garrett Rodriguez's alleged murderer were also murdered, yeah. leaving John Riley Jr., who had no interest in speaking with police, and then Bob Holtzclaw, the Alder Point 8 member who pistol-whipped the alleged murderer and that dude that Matt Brown sprayed with bear spray for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So after the deaths of Scott Johnson and Neil Decker, time marched on and the weed scene evolved. So we're going to take a little break from murder. And we're going to talk about now, mm-hmm. in the time between these murders and our final murder, what was kind of going on on the mountain. Yeah. I'm actually really excited to hear about this because, you know, I already did the interview mm-hmm. episode. So it's interesting for me to, in retrospect, map his journey of what he went through over all of these events. Not so much the murder stuff, but just like the the change in the community and how the region was developing and Yeah, morphing. yeah. For our friend, their experience may not be the same as other people's experience. Like in the documentary, they're interviewing certain people who are having certain issues. And from right. what we know... It, it, there's little micro communities all over the mountain. So some people had some experiences, some had others. We're going to talk about kind of the timeline yeah. of legalization and that the experience of some of the people on the mountain. Yeah. So I don't want to say this is like everyone's of course. And it is a lot of it is from this specific documentary and this long form article, this New Yorker article I talked about last week. Right. Um, that does have kind of a certain pro mom and pop grower, uh, like, Lens, yeah, Yeah. but I Uh I think it's still really interesting. Of course, yeah. I mean, every piece of documentary journalism, whatever, is going to have an angle. Yeah, you know, and in the end, it is entertainment, so they're pushing a narrative or whatever. Right, and it's interesting, but I do think it makes it tracks to me that this would make sense. It's just more from the perspective of how legalization affected the smaller grower versus like. I don't know, the benefits of the new taxes or whatever. Or yeah. Like, you know, the idea that it would cut down on like crime because you're pulling people away from the black market. Right. Spoiler alert. Probably didn't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in 2015, California passed the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act. So now, almost 20 years after the passage of Prop 215 and legal medical Bud, mm-hmm. the state finally cracked the whip on licensure and regulation. And Humboldt County started its very first permitting system for commercially growing ganja in the area. So you remember we talked about last week that like basically medical marijuana was legal, but it was just not being enforced in sort of any sort of 
hardcore way. Right. It was a very great, so many gray areas and different things going on. And that happened for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. People were growing without people actually really having a, a strong regulatory system. Right. So this is around where that started, around 2015. Okay. So by 2015, the mountain was a mixture of like legal and black market grow operations. And then like maybe some that are kind of in between have some good stuff and some bad stuff, whatever. Right. But really simply, the county was like, even if you're a total black market grower, if you come forward now and disclose your stash, you can apply for a permit without getting busted. Sounds like a trap, right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, come come on out here, tell us where your grow is, man. You'll be fine. <laughs> Definitely sounds like a trap. Lots of people thought that, but uh-huh. it wasn't a trap in that sense. But the permitting process wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, because all of a sudden growers had to like learn how to balance their books instead of burn their books mm-hmm. or not keep books mm-hmm. and start learning the basics of like legit small business work on the fly, like taxes and accounting and branding and marketing. It's like a whole nother system. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they were now agreeing to have a working relationship with the fuzz, the cops, right? <laughs> five O, Popo, Popo, which culturally in the area had a long and robust history of avoiding, right? Yes. It also opened the county up to all kinds of permitting and tax stuff, not just with weed, right? Because basically, the hippies who built structures like the Nonagon, mm-hmm. they weren't following any kind of like building code. So <laughs> now that the county had access to these grow operations, they could also come in and make them fix roads and bring their wells up to code or pay thousands of dollars worth of environmental impact assessments, things that other people, you know, in agriculture have to do or live in cities have yeah, to do. So, yeah. you know, that was going on. And, and it all ended up being really really expensive because infrastructure hadn't been updated like ever like not once it was not a you know just build and move on right what you're saying is there are houses in the middle of the woods that don't have plumbing so how could you make sure your plumbing is up to code if there's no sewer anywhere right it it becomes this big avalanche of like we're taxing, you've got to bring this stuff up to code and now it's your house and now it's your outhouse and now it's whatever, right? right? And, you know, this wasn't like intentionally over the top in terms of being like punitive. For instance, it's pretty tight that the county could stop growers from doing things like poisoning a local water table or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. The regulation of that is not all terrible. It's just so expensive. The unintended consequence was now that the newer generation was stuck with the bill for fixing everything older generations had built with a soup spoon and (laughs) they were going broke doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And with all of the extra cost and growing and the influx of new growers, the prices for pot went into a whack ass downslide. And then at the end of 2016, Proposition 64 passed in California, legalizing bud for the California masses. According to reporting from Emily Witt for The New Yorker, backed in part by George Soros, the billionaire dude, Mm -hmm. and Sean Parker, who used to be the president of Facebook, 
Proposition 64 promised to bring in billions of dollars in tax revenue for, for California. The critics of Prop 64 claim it just didn't do enough to protect mom and pop growers for being pushed out by major agribusiness conglomerates like Coca-Cola or whatever, uh-huh. right? Yeah. The argument was that Prop 64 was essentially designed to cater to giant monocrop situations owned essentially by the George Soroses of the world. Right. There were some protections in place to protect small growers. Like there was a limit on the size of land you could permit. Like you could only have a certain amount of acreage. But then the state just sold as many permits as any single entity wanted. Right. You know what I mean? So they're like, we're protecting you by being like, you can only permit, I don't know how many acres, 15 acres. But then George Soros can buy 25 permits. Right, exactly. And, And then it doesn't matter. Also, just for the record, I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories stuff about George Soros, and I don't know what oh, any of it means. I don't know that. I didn't, I didn't I know that. I think people, I think he's like a major, they think he's like, um, I don't even know who on the political spectrum thinks he's evil, and I don't even really know what he represents. But I just want every, I'm pleading ignorance because it's literally true. Like, we're throwing his name around, but we don't align. Well, he did back. Prop 64. So I think yeah. that did happen. I mean, he's involved. But I, I guess I'm saying sure. George Soros is, I just mean like the billionaires of the world. Right. Right. Yeah. Rather than like, you know, homie with the soup spoon digging in the dirt. It's going to be like, right. This guy with 50 million acres making all the money. That's I just don't all. need anyone out there thinking we actually know what the hell George no, Soros is I'm up sorry. to or whether or not we align with or against him or whatever <laughs> even any of that shit means. And that's tr- I literally appreciate the truth. what you're saying. I think you're totally, thank you for saying that. Anyway, back to it. Mm-hmm. Prop 64 also, I guess, in some ways made police regulation way easier. They started using satellites to find illegal grows, so it was a lot easier than finding a needle in a haystack. You just look at the top, you know? Mm-hmm. So everything was kind of crazy on the mountain. You've got, like, black market growers who might be going through the permitting process. You have people who started the permitting process and stopped. You've got fully legal. You've got you know, medical, Mm -hmm. like it's very crazy mixed bag. And now that they've got all these resources, they're trying to bust people. And so what they were doing was, you know, law enforcement has these like caravans that are Mm -hmm. cop cars and wood chippers. Like we talked about before. Yeah. And they're basically looking at these satellite images and then going down these dirt roads and just like, I mean, the documentary Mm -hmm. showed one bust in particular that just looked really tense to me where like they run on the scene and they go, where's your permit? There's all these guys with guns and a wood chipper and they have their crop there. And the guy, you know, he's, he's just an employee. The owner's not there. So he runs inside and he happens to have a binder with all their permitting laminated. Uh So they had bad, they had, basically there's so many little parcels out on the land Mm -hmm. that the people checking the permitting didn't have the right address. It was like the place next door. And so they were accusing them of not being permitted. And so they had to prove on the fly with all this organized paperwork to guys with guns drawn who were really with machetes ready to cut down their whole crop for the season. Yeah. We're not taking this to court. Yeah. Right. I mean, it just is happening. It's like, and, and you know, people aren't used to that kind of stuff and there's not like, it's not like now or you go into a restaurant, everybody knows you put the, you know, health, 
rating the, yeah. your health score out on the window and that's where it goes. And, you know, it, it's, it doesn't have that same structure. Well, and this even was happening in terms of the legal stores here in Los Angeles yeah, or stores yeah. that appeared legal. I worked at a restaurant in K-Town in Los Angeles that was like in a busy hopping part of K-Town on a major ass street, Western freaking whatever Avenue. And there was this weed shop right next to our restaurant. And I would go in there and buy little edibles and stuff from there. And I remember one morning I was like, oh, I'll get there a little early and I'll go in and buy something before my shift because I want to leave as soon as my shift is over and come home. And But I wanted something. And just I just happened to be running late that day. So yeah. I was, uh, got to work on time but didn't have enough time to go into the weed shop. So when I show up to work, the cops have all the employees and all of the customers from inside the weed shop pulled up, lined up in yeah. handcuffs down the block. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like incredibly lucky that I hadn't been there. And I was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh yeah, that's an illegal store. And you're like, what? It's, it looks as legal as anything else. And that was happening. There's security guard. There's a sign. There's nothing secret about it. And that was happening all the time. And then like two weeks later, they were just open again. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what, what's up there? And then, and then, my boss knew the guy who was running that and he was like, oh yeah, they make a ton of money. They pay everyone out who gets in any kind of legal trouble. It's financially lucrative for them to do it until they get busted. Right. You know? Yeah. And th- that just happened. Yeah. That would happen. Then you'd start seeing it all over town, a completely, completely legal seeming business yeah. is suddenly getting raided. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. It's, I, I think I'm, so glad that you said that. I know, because I remember like being here at this time and just having it always be this ever-changing, yeah, weird, you know, tense thing. I mean, it's not always like that. It's like uh, that for us because we're sensitive. <laughs> but like you go into a place and they need five kinds of ID and then they argue with you and then you yeah. go again and nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you go, what? You know, it's just such a, it was such a Wild West feeling yeah. industry at that time for sure. Right. So... All of this means is that, you know, by around 2019 or so, a lot of mom and pop growers had spent their entire life savings coming up to compliance for these medical permits only to have Prop 64 passed. And now they have all this legal weed that they couldn't offload in this super saturated market. Right. So some people turn to focus on like niche boutique weed that could be harder for bigger commercial operations to produce. Mm -hmm. And then others are just turning back to the black interstate market, getting bud to like the weed starved people in Arizona or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Just take it to where it's illegal. Right. In fact, according to Zeman's documentary as of 2018, Humboldt County supplied something like 80% of black market weed to the U.S. Yeah. So there's lots of ways you can cut this, but it definitely feels like a mixed bag of results. Right. So now that we have a sketch of what was going down in parts of the mountain and the history of what was happening, we're going to turn our attention to our final murder of the day, the 2017 murder of Bob Holtzclaw. Ooh. And this was a weird one to me. So according to interviews featured in Zeman's documentary, Bob 
like we said before, had a reputation for being kind of a macho wild card. Like it's very fitting he would be the guy who, while Scott Johnson is using his words to like mediate a situation, mm-hmm. would jump in and pistol whip a guy and accidentally fire the gun. Right. Like he's that guy, right? Right. According to community members, Bob basically told people straight up, I'm too old to fight. But apparently, he really liked fighting. So his solution (laughs) was to just pull out his gun during arguments a lot. So if you got in an argument with Bob, he'd pull out a gun. Right. And he's also out here getting bear sprayed and just... (laughs) I mean, I don't really know. It's like, again, it's horrible to talk. I'm not trying to talk ill about him, but you think about the history. We don't know that much about what he was up to, but we do know he got bear maced and then... (laughs) You know. <laughs> yeah, he likes to fight, and now that he's too old, he pulls out his gun. Right. Right. Uh, in 2017, the community said that Bob Holtzclaw was having some sort of feud with a 27-year-old mountain dude about who was more badass. Basically, uh-huh. very similar to Neil Decker and Matt Brown. Sure. Thing like that. That's what the, doc- the people interviewed for the documentary talk about. Uh-huh. So basically the rumor is that Bob Holtzclaw told Zach Harrison that he was going to rape him and Zach Harrison on September 23rd, 2017 shot him dead in the middle of the road in the middle of a day Mm. and then left his body in the road and went off to party like nothing happened. So that's the general idea. Okay. It's pretty, pretty intense. So Zach eluded cops for almost eight months and in doing so earned the reputation of being a quote evil Jason Bourne. We're gonna go over <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna go over that whole situation. Okay. But I, I just felt like funny. I did, why is that funny? I mean his reputation amongst other like uh like I, that was other locals. that was from an investigator. Oh really <laughs> <laughs> <He's> <laughs> they, like he was like he, we just thought he was like an evil Jason Bourne. It's uh, like, I'm pretty sure he's just smoking weed and like staying hidden. No, there's right? he did a bunch of crazy oh, okay, stuff. Right. So we're going to get into it. Okay, okay, okay. But I just thought like it didn't really make sense. Like who are these people and like uh-huh. why, what kind of conflict happens in the middle of the day. And so I, I dug around the Crime Beat articles from the Lost Coast Outpost, which is one of the local papers mm-hmm. uh, around Humboldt County that covers that whole area, yeah. like Northern California. And then I found this newsletter written by a woman named Kim Kemp um, that's called the Red-Headed Black Belt. And then I also found case text from the People versus Harrison just to see if we could expand the picture of what might have happened a little bit. Cool. So this is basically like Zach Harrison's version of events mixed with some viewpoints of other locals involved and other law enforcement. And then also... Zach Harrison's sister, Leah. Okay, so if I'm picking up what you're laying down, you collected a bunch of different points of views from different resources, and this is actually Muriel's version of events based on all of that stuff. I would say what I did was mostly look at the what was said in the case text mm-hmm. and used that as like a structure to kind of build out and then, you know, then the, you supplemented with some other stuff. Yeah, because if people cover the 
the actual like courtroom drama yeah. and so they write about what had happened and who said what outside the courtroom right but, so you're not a again you're not a journalist but i feel like this is kind of like a little bit of an original folk folklore thing you're putting together here i don't know i don't think you don't so. want to take the credit for <laughs> no, it i, I think it. i don't think it's really it's fun and it's very it's interesting to talk to you about it okay i think that this is just something that maybe fills out this story that felt a little thin to me okay and with the remembering that Nobody knows exactly what of course. happens. People are dead. Nobody knows exactly what happens. Right. Okay. So this is the more Zach Harrison's version of the story. On the morning of the murder, Bob Holtzclaw had been throwing horseshoes with his friend, Tori Hennings, at Alder Point's annual horseshoe tournament. So Fun. They were sucking pretty bad and they lost very early into the tournament. That's so, awesome. So they ended up like jumping uh-huh. into Bob's truck to go pick up a dog and then they were going to go drive to Tori Henning's place to just chill out. They're typically like drinking buddies. Uh-huh. So they're like, ah, horseshoes suck. Let's go drink some beer. Okay. So when they get to Henning... <laughs> I relate. I mean, I just get it. Like, yeah, you, you want to sign up for that and you get there and then other people are good and you suck and you're just like, oh, I guess that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. We're not going to stick around and see who wins. I know drinking's going to be fun. Yeah. See you later. You hear about that dog? Anyways. <laughs> so when they get to Henning's house, mm-hmm. they find a symbol of, you know, bad things to come. Mm-hmm. The road was blocked by a randomly closed gate. So nobody knows who the gate belongs to. A lot of this is just whatever. Sometimes the gate's closed. We do know that a gate closed will piss off certain people. You close that gate and God forbid you put a little latch or fucking a real lock on there. It's game over. Yeah. So okay. they say they say sometimes that gate's open. Sometimes it's closed. Uh-huh. It's annoying. It's not locked. You can just undo it. Right. So whatever. So they park. The, they stop the car. Bob is driving uh-huh. and Tori Hennings jumps out of the car to go un- unlatch the gate. So he walks around to the front of the truck to open the gate and what Tori Henning says as he hears Bob say, Zach has got a gun. So at this point, it's in the middle of the day. It's Mm -hmm. like one o'clock in the afternoon, Mm -hmm. something like that. So Hennings says he looks up to see his childhood friend, a very close friend of his, Zach Harrison, pointing a hunting rifle at him from about 40 feet away. Mm -hmm. So Tori Hennings and Zach Harrison had been friends for 20 years, and they had also just started a grow operation together that summer. So, you know, Tori Hennings says he saw Zach almost every single day. He didn't have any conflict with Zach, and he didn't know of any beef between Zach and Bob. He says, I don't understand Uh why he would be upset. So Henning's reaction is to run like kind of over to the side of the truck, jump in the back seat of the truck and hide directly behind Bob. So Zach, from a, a, according to Tori, from about 40 feet away, he fires one shot hitting Bob in the chest and then he turned around and walked away. Tori Hennings jumps out of the back of the truck and he just 
takes off. He runs to a nearby friend's house and just waits there until he says he saw Zach's truck drive away from the scene. He did all that before checking on Bob, who by that time was obviously dead. So people Mm -hmm. had ran out to the truck and tried, they'd heard the shots and tried to Mm -hmm. stop the bleeding, but he had been shot actually into into the heart. And he died right there? Yeah. R.I.P. About an hour after that, Tori Hennings went to talk with police. And witnesses at the time described Tori Hennings as acting really erratic and really nervous. But again, he just saw like one of his close friends be shot by like one of his childhood best friends. Right. So he that seems like it could make sense. Yeah. So Zach Harrison left town immediately afterwards. He took off. And the next time he was seen was on March 21st, 2018. So the next year in the town of Miranda, which is in the area, pumping gas. So a humble county officer was called to the scene. Someone recognized this kid. And she chased him for a short time down a, a gravel road. It's a car chase. But she decided to stop and hold back and wait for backup because he could be armed and dangerous. Yeah, right. So when backup came, they drove up the gravel road and they approached the car. And the car had really heavily tinted windows so they couldn't see anything. So they took out this beanbag gun and they shot it at the car for a while trying to like maybe bust out a window or something like that. Didn't work. So they finally snuck up to the car. They get it open. And lo and behold, the car is empty. And Zach had disappeared into the woods. Mm -hmm. Evil Jason Bourne strikes again. Exactly. So then the next day, law enforcement found him in a trailer. It wasn't his trailer. He had been hiding out. They surrounded him. Uh, He came up with his hands up. They told him to get on the ground. He crouched down on the ground, and then he took off like a bat out of hell. He just ran away. So officers shot at him with a beanbag gun again, but he kept going. And <laughs> You can't shoot a hippie with a beanbag gun? That's like a hacky sack. He's like, I made a beanbag. That's like spraying a fish with a hose or something, you know? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so then... They're watching him, uh-huh. and his wild ass runs down this super crazy, rocky, steep embankment as he's stripping down completely buck naked. Uh-huh. And this is, it's cold, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's March, right? Right now, it's March in the mountains in Northern California, uh-huh. and he's running down to jump in the Eel River, which is full of like winter snow runoff freezing water. Oh, man. So, he is evil. Stripping down buck naked, he jumps in the river. And he gets away. He's gone. <laughs> a couple hours later. I feel like he absorbed those beanbags. Yeah, maybe. Okay, so anyways. a couple hours later, a deputy actually sees him on the other side of the Eel River. They uh-huh. can't really get to him. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's just waving. Right. So he sees him naked uh-huh. walking around in the forest. And they start yelling at each other, but they can't really hear. And basically, Zach takes off again. And he's gone for uh, a couple more months. So he mm-hmm. was gone the first time for about six months. And then he was gone again for about two months. So he was finally arrested June 6, 2018 in a Walmart parking lot in Eureka. And he went very peacefully. Didn't He gave a fake name at first. And then he was like, I think he literally said, man, that really sucked. Like the whole thing. He was just <laughs> yeah. starving in the woods. You right, know? right. Well, and also Eureka is not far. This is all like two hours-ish away from... Yes. It's all... 
it's not like he's in a different state or even in a different part of the state. No, he's like in Northern California on the run this entire time. Yeah. So during his initial two-hour interrogation, Zach Harrison completely denied shooting Bob Holtzclaw. Zach told investigator Mark Peterson, who was leading the questioning, that he did know Bob. Holtzclaw from around town and he did have beef with Bob Holtzclaw that a few months before the shooting Bob had actually threatened him with a gun like he liked to do in Tori Henning's yard while mm-hmm. they were all hanging out Zach Harrison also said that Bob Holtzclaw had been going around town telling people he had come up behind Zach hit him on the back of his head knocked him out and sexually assaulted him and it's something that Zach believes actually may have happened. Mm. So there's different ways that different news outlets talk about uh-huh. it. So like when Zach was being questioned, he said, yes, like I was sexually assaulted by Bob Holtzclaw. And then in other places, it's like he was, ups- he didn't know what happened, but he was upset about the rumors, you know, right. whatever was going on. The rumor is, is that Bob is bragging about it. Right. Right. But what Zach really wanted to say is he wanted to say that he felt Tori Hennings had a motive to frame him for the murder. He said he suspected Tori Hennings wanted to take over their grow operation and push Zach out. Hmm. And that also, by the way, Tori Hennings had been sleeping with Zach's girlfriend and baby's mama. Mm-hmm. So there was some sort of, you know, Tori Henning story is like, we're best friends forever. Right. We've, we're with each other every day. We never have a fight. I don't know of any beef about between him and Bob. Yeah. And Zach Harrison's version of events is very, very, very different. Yeah. We're childhood enemies, actually. <laughs> well, not really. Sorry. What he's saying is we were friends and now he's sleeping with my woman and wants me out of this business. That's a pretty crazy accusation to say he wants me out of our business so bad that he's going to kill someone else and frame me. It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. So in the end, Tori Henning's testimony was essentially key to putting Zach in prison. Mm -hmm. People had seen Zach's car in the area, but no one but Tori Henning's claimed to have actually seen the shooting. There was no other witness. Mm -hmm. So I'll just name a couple things that happened in the course of the investigation. Like, they found the type of rifle and ammunition that was used to kill Bob Holtzclaw in the trailer where Zach had been hiding, Mm. but Zach's fingerprints weren't on anything. Mm -hmm. And it's a really common rifle in that area for people to own. And no fingerprints or ballistics concretely linked that gun to the gun that killed Bob. In fact, the murder weapon that killed Bob was never found. Mm. And there were also some issues with whether or not Zach... Harrison was actually properly read his Miranda rights and understood them. That ended up being resolved. But when you read back the way he was Mirandized, Mm because it's recorded and then transcribed, it does seem like he's confused about the public defender thing. It's kind of like when they said you have the right to remain silent and you have a right to an attorney. He's thinking of the trial, like that he has a right to a a public defender for the trial, Uh but not realizing he can also have a public defender during questioning. Mm. And so it seems like he's maybe confused about that aspect of it. But anyway, that ended up not 
being a technicality that was good enough to. I was saying, derail. man, if I start getting my Miranda read to me, I'm going to be like, what? What? I, you mean I can have a public defense? Don't know? do anything that makes somebody read you. <laughs> well, I'll be confused as hell when it happens. Let's see if we can get the whole thing tossed. And there's actually the last thing that I'll say about the case text and stuff like that. There's this section of questioning that was recorded in 2018 after Zach was arrested that was interesting to me because it kind of both suggested a motive for Tori Hennings to frame Zach, but also a motive for Zach to have wanted to kill Tori Hennings and actually accidentally shooting Bob instead, Mm. which Mm -hmm. are two theories that, that kind of some people have. Right. It also just sheds light on the vibe of what was happening at the time. So detective Mark Peterson of the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department did the questioning. He said, did you and Hennings ever have a falling out? And the answer, one time I thought he effed my lady in a motel room where we were at. And that was the only thing. But I think he knows that I know. Then the next question is, was this before or after you guys were growing together? The answer, this was kind of right at the beginning, dude. And then the question, but you're still at his place growing together. Answer, I just started doing drugs and we would all just do them at the same time. And then I woke up and my lady comes out of the bathroom naked and then he comes out afterwards. But see, he knew I know. And the next question, so now you're accusing the mother of your child of being with another dude? The answer, my best friend. We were just in the beginning of the year, meaning the grow operation. Mm -hmm. And then the last question. So the best friend and the mother of your child and they, and the last answer is they got caught and I never said anything. So ultimately, November 18th, 2019, Zachary Harrison was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. In 2019, his sister Leah reached out to Kim Kemp to talk about her brother. The interview is kind of like light on details, Mm -hmm. but generally Leah feels that her family has like a really bad reputation in Northern California. The Harrisons are kind of this known clan and this is all whatever, but like I did look at an AMA and some uh, on Reddit and some Mm -hmm. other kind of forum posting things and that name the Harrison clan comes up over and over again mm-hmm. in a connection to meth and some other stuff uh-huh she says we may have a bad rep in the area but like my family aren't necessarily all bad people and also that she's still on the fence as to whether her brother is actually guilty like the idea that Tori Henning's testimony carried so much weight when there seemed to be so much weird stuff happening between him and her brother mm-hmm. and the fact that he was the only witness, you know, to her, I think she still had a lot of questions about yeah. what happened that day. Yeah. That makes sense. And basically she just said they had a really, really hard childhood and it was completely filled with drug addiction. When Zach was 11, his mom and stepdad both died of overdoses Ooh. in the span of six months in Humboldt. Uh, his older brother died too. And we're not going to go too far into it, but aside from weed, 
rural Northern California has like a devastating meth and opioid problem. Mm -hmm. There's an article by Jose A. Del Real who writes for the New York Times. The article is called Needle by Needle, A Heroin Crisis Grips California's Rural North. It's a really good read if you're interested in, in learning more about it. But like Humboldt County, people die from opioid overdose at a rate that is five times higher than the average of the state of California. So it's rivaling places where, you know, that <clears throat> other states that get national attention yeah. for opioid crisis. But, you know, it's not reported as much because it's thought of much more as a weed town. Right. That's interesting. I mean, and tragic. Yeah. So after his parents died, Zach lived with friends and became an addict at a really young age himself. Leah ended the interview by telling Kemp, people think it's some great conspiracy and all the deaths that happened. There is no conspiracy. It's just random tragedy. No one death is really related to another. There's no conspiracy. Just a lot of drugs. Mm. And that's the end. <sighs> it's just a real wild ride, man. Yeah. 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 That's uh, it was funny. I think the last episode you were like, was that just meaning like the guess the cropsy one or something? Mm-hmm. You were like, I just feel like this one was so tough, you know. And I get why that one was really tragic because it's children. A lot of children were involved yeah. or whatever. But I don't know. I feel like more connected to this one in this really real way. Like I feel like this was just a, you know this was a rough ride <laughs> yeah i mean things affect people in different ways yeah. you know i i think that's a funny thing about true crime that's why you say like just don't listen to it if you can't handle it <laughs> yeah. so i'll try to tell people like oh you like this one and they're like devastated horrible and then other yeah. people will be like oh this is fine why would you think i would be upset right about it? you know so right well that's me every week i know i know all I right know. do your stupid resources <laughs> Okay, so our main source, of course, is the 2018 docu-series Murder Mountain by Joshua Zeman. Uh, we also use this great article from The New Yorker. Uh, it's a 2019 article, How Legalization Changed Humboldt County Marijuana by Emily Witt. We used a lot of crime beat reporting from Lost Coast Outpost. That is such a cool resource that just does tons of local reporting on Northern California. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that name Lost Coast, but also hearing about how there's all these issues that are underreported because California sort of has other sort of banner social issues that kind of get projected out of here. You know what I mean? As like the leading headlines of what California is dealing with. Yeah. And for sure, meth and opioid issues are not at the forefront of that. So also hearing the lost coast, uh, name is it's, it sounds cool, but there's also this tinge of like, uh, sadness in it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to shout out our lady who does her newsletter. Mm-hmm. Kim Kemp's redheaded black belt newsletter is just a lady who's mm-hmm. been doing this forever. She takes donations and she just, does her own reporting about what she thinks is interesting that's going around. Oh, that's in the cool. Community. And she's like active now. Yeah. Oh, she, let's, let's shout out her. I'll try to hit her up online, see if she uh, gets back to us. We did freaking three episodes 
based on or whatever from Joshua Zeman, right? We did Cropsy. We did this one. What was the other one? I can't remember. Sons now. of Sam. Sons of Sam, right? That guy didn't hit us up. I tagged him on social media. No love from Joshua Zeman. So now. Don't say that. He's probably listening right now. He's so excited. Now he thinks you don't like him. How come I can't talk trash about 50 cents, but you can talk trash about Joshua Zeman? Nick is still mad about me for me making fun of the stupid songs he does. We love you, 50 Cent. We love you, Joshua Zeman. And we love, what's her name? Kim Kemp. Kim Kemp. Shout out, man. Hell yeah. Okay. Um, right now, if you go to our Patreon, the interview that we're releasing as a full episode next week is available for you. So get yourself an early Christmas present. Sign up for Patreon. That's also a Christmas present for us because those dollars help us make this show. This is a DIY operation. Get to it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and then also we'll be releasing um, our adventures in Humboldt. We're, yeah. we're heading up there. So we'll, we'll give you a little taste. Yeah. All right. Um, it's the holidays, baby. We love you. Bye. Hold on. We just, I had to press record again. This is a bonus. If you're still listening, this is a bonus. Miro, just tell me what you just said. All right. This is one of my favorite parts of the documentary that I didn't include. You should have. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this is like when they're talking about to different people about how they felt about Zachary Harrison being on the run for so long. The evil Jason Bourne. The evil Jason Bourne. <laughs> yeah. And there's this guy, and they don't say who he is, and he's like lying on this burnt out mattress. It's like there's garbage everywhere. It's very dirty. <laughs> yeah. He's just drinking a fat, tall boy of beer. Yeah. And he, you know, and this is the point of the interview where he perks up and he goes, I know why he jumped in that eel river, took off all his clothes, he jumped in the river to cover his body up with mud and then run off into the woods like a Sasquatch. <laughs> And I was like, damn, maybe that's right. Maybe the Eel River really does have some like Some magical mud. That's where the Sasquatch is born. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast, guess what? It was recorded, written, and edited, and everything in our house. This is... <laughs> Welcome to our house. <laughs> to help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Muriel's Murder. If you enjoyed this episode, please text it to a loved one in your life that you think would also enjoy it. We love hearing from you. You keep us all inspired and motivated. To keep that inspiration pumping through our veins, you can reach out to us uh, via Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Rate us on Spotify. Leave us a voicemail or DM us a voice memo and we'll put it in an episode. Tag us on social media we even have email you can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode or you can visit our website muriel'smurders.com our music is by the amazing the cool the fresh the dank if you will mario Casolini. he's a lot of fun to follow on instagram at Casolini. that's it man goodbye peace <laughs>